Hey, before we get the show started, we have a quick favor for you. We've got a survey for listeners of The Interchange and The Energy Gang. It's right there in the show notes. Shale, have you done your duty and done the survey yet? Um, I, I, I sure will, <laughs> right after we record this podcast. Let me just ask the questions. Do you listen to The Interchange podcast? I, I do sometimes, which is <laughs> sort of embarrassing, I suppose. But yes. Why are you embarrassed? I don't know. Do you, listening to yourself, you don't think that's a little like <laughs> self-absorbed? Well, I listen to it for the editing. So Sure, me too. I, me I have too. a reason, a professional reason. Yeah. Uh, this probably means I'm not the right person to fill out this survey. Well, the folks out there listening are the right people to fill out this survey. So just pick up the device you're listening on and tap that link right there in the show notes to fill out the survey. It'll help us create content that's more relevant to you and help us find sponsors that are more relevant to you. Thanks so much. Speaking of our sponsors, support for The Interchange comes from Schneider Electric, the leader of digital transformation in energy management and automation. They are the leaders in the three Ds, decentralization, decarbonization, and digitalization, building out microgrids for community resiliency and higher adoption of electric vehicles. To find out more about Schneider's microgrid development, click the link there in the show notes. We're also brought to you by PG&E. 39% of California's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation, and PG&E is trying to slash those emissions by making it easier for medium and heavy-duty trucks and corporate fleets to go electric. If you are a PG&E customer, you can take advantage of limited-time incentives with the EV fleet program. Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists or learn more by heading to pge.com gtm. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. In Boston, I am Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. Shail Khan is with me from Berkeley. Welcome to you, sir. He is managing director at Energy Impact Partners. How's it going? It's going great, Stephen. Uh, we're currently compiling a handful of interviews for a miniseries that we're working on about climate risk. We are, over the next few weeks, looking at science, climate science, the economic risks, the financial risks, and the creative policies needed to address those risks. And Shale, do you want to tell them what comes at the end of that series? Ah, the end of that series is going to be the long-awaited second edition of our deep decarbonization draft, the first of which we did 18 months ago? It was a while ago, right? It was, oh, May of 2018. Look uh -huh, at that. A year and a half ago. Well, we got an extraordinary response to that episode, actually far greater than I assumed. And it turns out that it inspired others, not just in the U.S., but around the world to do their own drafts, um, some in an educational setting, some at a conference setting in like game show style. So because others were inspired, it re-inspired us to pick up the mantle and do the deep decarbonization draft again. Okay, so as we await that highly anticipated return of D3, the deep de decarbonization draft, and the episodes leading up to it, I was thinking about what to cover as a bridge to those interviews. And I got a little inspiration from this podcast I listened to called The Indicator. It's a spinoff show from NPR's Planet Money. So I wanted to give a nod to them because they provided uh, the, the inspiration for this episode. They did something kind of similar to what we are going to do right now. Today, we have a barometer of the energy transition. There are a ton of numbers flying at us every day. 
about how energy markets are performing, how technologies are changing, how businesses are growing or failing. And it is our job to try to make sense of them. So, Shale, I come to you with some numbers, three different numbers on three different energy sectors. And I'm going to give you the number in the sector, and you have to try to guess what it indicates. Then we'll discuss what it actually is. And at the end, uh, I'm going to ask you to choose which stat you think is most important. Are you ready, Shale? I'm ready. So let's go through the three numbers. The first one deals with the transportation sector, and the number is 200 million. What do you think it is? Ooh, 200 million. Um, uh, sales, new, new, global new sales of trucks in 2018. Does that even make sense? No, I, that's uh, pretty high, but you're on to yeah, something. Right. <laughs> that, that's a, that's a, I might have guessed something like that, but you're on to a pattern of behavior, and that is that SUV sales are way up around the world. So there are now over 200 million SUVs on the roads around the world. Do you think that's a, it's a big number? What do you think? Does that sound big? Oh, so it is. So it is. It's 200 million ex- existing in the entire fleet SUVs on the roads. Yeah, but guess how right? many SUVs were on the road in 2010? So it's 200 million now in 2010. I don't know, 180 million? No, 35 million. Wow. And as a result, SUVs were the second largest contributor to the increase in global CO2 emissions since 2010 after the power sector. That's according to the International Energy Association. So SUVs alone. So like the first the first biggest SUVs contributor to alone. net increase in CO2 emissions is the power sector overall and then the second is SUVs on their own. Yeah. Get this. SUVs on their own contributed more to the increase in CO2 emissions since 2010 than iron and steel, cement and aluminum. Oh man, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um oh actually, let me hold on. Let me look this up. Yeah, okay. I let me let me give you a related stat that you can guess. So what share of new vehicle sales would you estimate were SUVs in the United States last year? I don't know, somewhere around a third. A little more than that, 48%, almost half of new vehicle sales were SUVs. But what would you estimate it was in China? I, I don't know. I would expect volumes to be potentially higher in China, but in terms of share... I don't know, something similar, maybe around a third. It was 42% in China, um, which is a little lower than the United States, but to me is an incredibly high number. Like I didn't realize that China was switching over to SUVs nearly that fast. It means that globally, 39% of new vehicle sales were were SUVs last year, up from 17% in 2010. So you could see how SUVs contributed a huge amount. Now, I guess the question is going forward, if we're thinking about SUVs as a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, um, since the solution that we are largely banking on for light duty vehicles for decarbonization is electrification, the question is, how fast will the same thing happen with SUVs? Because there's definitely less, there are less um, affordable, you know, sort of middle class type electric SUVs. Yeah. 
It's the question of the day, and it turns out to be a much more important question than I imagined because as I looked at this, you know, SUVs represent more change in CO2 emissions than heavy industry, trucks, aviation, shipping, or other internal combustion engine models since 2010. That totally wowed me. Before we get to our second and third stats, a quick break here to talk about our sponsors. We are supported by Schneider Electric. Today, we live in a world where the entire power ecosystem is being upended by digitalization, locally-based movements for more distributed clean energy, decentralization, and Schneider Electric is harnessing those trends and developing microgrids to enable a more reliable, resilient, and sustainable future. Across North America, Schneider Electric has designed and built more than 300 microgrid projects. To learn more about their microgrid as a service funding model, check out the link for Schneider Electric in our show notes. They've done all sorts of cool projects. We're also brought to you by PG&E. Medium and heavy-duty fleets play a big role in California's pursuit of 5 million zero-emissions vehicles on the road by 2030. We just heard about SUVs providing an enormous increase in global CO2 emissions. So this is a problem everywhere, and PG&E is focused on it within California. It is helping customers sort through the 70 different models for zero emissions vans, buses, and now trucks that are available from manufacturers, and is helping them take their commercial fleets electric. They've got a free guidebook to fleet electrification and infrastructure, and you can get that without any strings attached. Download your free copy of the guidebook today at pge.com gtmev. Okay, Shale, here is our second stat. The sector is heavy industry. The number is 22%. What do you think I'm hinting at? Oh, I think I know this one because I think it comes from an article that I've been obsessed with for the past couple of weeks. Does this come from Dave Roberts' piece um, on industrial emissions? Oh, it does. Yes, Dave Roberts of Vox, who we cite frequently. Yes, he wrote a great piece on heavy industry and how difficult it is to decarbonize. It was making the rounds uh, in the energy and climate world. So what do you think I'm getting at? What's this stat? Um, the, the stat was in, industrial emissions represent 22% of global CO2 yes, emissions. Exactly. So why are you obsessed with this article? Well, the article is not just about heavy industry. It's more specific than that. And the number that I thought was um, even more striking was uh, a good chunk of the industrial emissions are coming from industrial heat. Um, and industrial heat alone is 10% of global CO2 emissions, which is more than all the world's cars put together. So like industrial heat is one of these areas that despite all the time that we spend talking about decarbonizing these other sectors, like industrial heat is a big challenge. And the article is just an amazing, it's like by far the clearest explanation that I've seen of the challenge inherent in decarbonizing industrial heat and the solution set that appears to be available. It, it cribs a lot from this couple of studies that um, were authored by Julio Friedman, who's a researcher at Columbia as part of this um, Columbia Center on Global Energy Policy that I'm a fellow at. Um, the articles themselves are are really good, but also dense. And so Dave Roberts just did this like, great job of turning it into you know human language. The problem, though, is that 
the share of renewables in global heat consumption, this includes, again, like heat heat for commercial buildings and for industrial process heat, uh, increases only from about about 10% today to 12% by 2024. So this is a sector that has barely been touched at this point. Well, and I think it's important to be clear about the the difference between um, using renewables for space heating, which is, I think, mostly what you were describing, and then industrial process heating, which is what that article is about and which is what on its own represents 10% of global CO2 emissions. And, you know, space heating is actually, I think, an easier problem to solve. Industrial process heat is a really hard problem to solve. Um, And the the study that... um, that Julio did or the couple of studies that Julio did basically laid out, I think like three kind of categories of potential solutions for industrial process heat. Um, basically one of them being electrify it, um, two being hydrogen, which can indirectly be electrifying it as well. You can use cheap renewables to produce hydrogen and then use the hydrogen, burn the hydrogen at a high temperature. Um, and three being carbon capture and storage. And like the takeaway that I took from the article, at least, was today your cheapest option is probably carbon capture, which I think, you know, a lot of times when people talk about CCS, um, most folks are thinking about CCS to put on top of like a coal plant or something like that. And so that this raises this whole set of like political debates. You don't so often think about CCS uh, to deal with industrial heat, um, but I think it may be like the earliest application of, of CCS that that becomes really important. So the, the sort of situation is today, if you're trying to decarbonize industrial process heat, you kind of need CCS. But then the question you ask yourself is like, will um, will hydrogen and or electrification come down the cost curve fast enough that it makes any sense? And I think that most people don't believe it will. There's also a bunch of other non-renewable energy or CCS technological factors that play a role in the difficulty in decarbonizing industrial heat. David really lays these out well. One is that you know you use this heat to create globally traded commodities, and so they're not necessarily priced domestically. So it makes it harder to price the carbon emissions within the the, the boundaries of one particular country. The national governments protect industrial jobs, right? You don't want to penalize these sectors too much because they cherish them as job creators. Um, When you think of the equipment needed in manufacturing processes or creating large pieces of equipment or machines, um, this equipment lasts a long time, many, many, many decades. And so the changeover is, is very slow. And then you just have operational requirements for this equipment that are very in flexible. So from an efficiency standpoint, there's not a lot that you can tap from changing the operational parameters of this equipment. So it's very difficult. Yeah. It's also not monolithic, right? Different, you know, industrial process heat is not one thing. Um, it's It comes out of different pro- industrial processes with different requirements. So for example, one of the other things that I thought was interesting was the temperature at which you need to hit in order to Uh, achieve a particular industrial process. So like at the low end, paper and pulp, I think you need like 200 degrees Celsius, which is hot to be sure, but nothing compared to 
uh, if you're doing glass, for example, which is like 1600 degrees Celsius and various different things can deliver those heats better or worse. So like hydrogen has the potential to deliver extremely high heat, but nuclear, for example, can't get that hot. It's a, it's capped out even advanced nuclear capped out at like 850 degrees Celsius. So you have, it's sort of, uh, similar to what you're saying. There's all these additional considerations that are specific to what kind of industry you're trying to decarbonize. You were so prepared to answer that one. I really liked Dave <laughs> Roberts article. <laughs> I swear I didn't do research. It was just, I, I spent like, I read that article like three times over the weekend because, um, you know, industrial emissions is one of these sectors that's been like on my list to dig into more for a long time. I know it's a problem. I know we think we don't have all the solutions for it yet, and but it's complicated and confusing. And so I've been like, I, without knowing it, I've been looking for a good explainer, which is exactly what this was. So um, I'm into it. Oh, what did you do this weekend? I went apple picking. I went looking for pumpkins. I went on a hike. No, I sat home and re- read Dave Roberts' article on industrial heat three times over. I didn't say I sat home. You don't know where I was. <laughs> okay, last one. This is from the electricity sector. And the number is 50%. What do you think? Um, Okay, this one I don't know. I'm going to guess that 50% of new electricity generation capacity in 2018 was renewables. No, that's a pretty good guess. Uh, According to the IEA's latest outlook, the International Energy Agency, renewables are set to expand by 50% through 2024. Do you think that that's an impressive number or not? Um, that's total re- global renewable energy capacity. Yeah, exactly. 50% by 2024. No, I don't think that's that impressive, to be honest. I, because, I mean, the, the, the big dynamic in my mind with re- renewables is that historically the market has been so concentrated in a small number of countries. Um, and so it's tough to like I- expand the capacity, for example, in the United States by 50% by 2024, because we've been building a bunch of renewables for quite a while. I mean, you could argue we could still go faster, but nonetheless, that's harder to do. But like, there's a whole big chunk of the world where one, they're adding a lot of new capacity in the first place. So think of places like India and Southeast Asia. Um, And two, where, you know, historically they haven't had as much renewables. India maybe is an exception there, but we should be able to expand global renewable energy capacity more than 50% over the next five years. Mm-hmm. It sounds impressive when you compare it to the capacity of a country. So that's actually equivalent to the power capacity of the entire United States. Seems fairly impressive. That is a lot of renewable energy. But as Michael Liebrich pointed out on Twitter, responding to these statistics, echoing the sentiment that you just expressed, uh, 50% is not that impressive because it would imply a massive slowdown, he says, in renewable growth rates. Uh, the share of wind generation has doubled by five times, according to Liebrich's numbers, uh, in 18 years, and solar nine times in 18 years. So again, historically speaking, a 50% growth uh, through 2024 is not very impressive. Now, what about EIA's projection that renewables will meet 50% of global electricity demand by 2050? 50% of global electricity demand from renewables by 2050? Yeah. Not not Yeah, they're talking like, about wind, solar, hydro, and biomass mostly. That I do think is actually impressive. Really. Like if if you got to 50% globally by 2050. I mean, you know, I think what you want is probably 80% 
or something by 2050, but that's a that's a steep hill to climb. It is. Yeah, I think that that would be you know, <laughs> you might like to see more, but that would be a a big movement. What are we at today? Do you know? Yeah, according to IEA, renewables were at 24% of renewable electricity consumption in 2017. So we don't have the 2018 numbers that I can see, but it would double. Oh. Well, okay. I mean, to be fair, probably a lot of that 24% is hydro. Yep. I assume. And a decent amount bioenergy. It's, uh, let's see, mostly hydro. Yep. And then wind, then solar PV, then bioenergy. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes it less impressive, to be honest. I mean, a, a doubling of market share by 2050, 30 years to just double your market share. Seems a little bit less impressive, but I mean, you know, if you assume that hydro doesn't expand significantly, then it, it probably is fairly significant expansion for wind and solar. Well, at what point do we look at these numbers and stop being impressed, right? We talk about these pretty strong growth rates, the doubling of capacity, but like if you actually compare these growth rates, which already are kind of slowing down and are not as impressive as they once were, and you compare them to CO2 reductions, like we're not looking, we're looking at continued rises in CO2 emissions globally while we see greater and greater share of renewable electricity. So when you actually compare them to the environmental impact, um, at least when it comes to global emissions, these numbers are even less impressive. Well, I guess the question is, where are we on the S-curve? Assuming that the uh, long history of renewables will look like an S-curve, are we just, you know, the optimistic view, I guess, for renewables would be that we are just entering the steep portion of the S-curve and we've got 30 years ahead of us where it's steep growth, in which case going from 24 to 50% is super conservative. Or are we further up the curve in which case renewables start to top out sooner and then maybe 50% is aggressive. But I think that's like this sort of fundamental global question around the electricity sector. Well, I think we probably have a lot more growth to go, but I don't necessarily think that equates to steep decarbonization. So which one of these statistics rises to the top as the most significant to you, Shale, or the most surprising? Which one would you pick to recite at a cocktail party to show how smart you are? <laughs> well, um, uh, since I was spent my Saturday reading this industrial process heat article and then did recite it to someone <laughs> later that evening, <laughs> embarrassingly enough, um, the answer is is pretty clear to me. I, I choose I choose the fact that Industrial process heat alone represents 10% of global emissions, more than all cars in the world combined. Well, you too can sound smart at a cocktail party by reading the reports that we just dug through. I would, I would join you in that conversation, Shale. I would nod and, um, and, and make you feel good about yourself as you recited that stat to people while holding a cocktail <laughs> in your hand. <laughs> So it's a weird way to put it. I mean, not like you would engage in the conversation, but you would be not your hype make man. me feel good about myself. Thank you for that. <laughs> Whoa, yeah, awesome that. stat. Wow, man. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what I'm looking for. You should come around with me to parties. Well, if you need an intellectual hype man, we can help you out. We have links there in the show notes for you uh, to Dave Roberts' article, to the IEA reports with its statistics that we mentioned in the transportation and electricity sectors. And uh, happy reading. That's it 
a quick episode from us. Stay with us over the coming weeks as we explore different facets of risk as the planet warms. And we will cap off with a new version of the deep decarbonization draft at the end of November. If you want to heckle us, praise us, or just politely pat us on the back, connect with us on Twitter. We're all there. The Interchange Show is there. Me and Shale are there. As always, send out a link to this show to anyone who you think would benefit. And uh, thanks to Daniel Waldorf, who helps produce and edit this show alongside me. We are a co-production of Green Tech Media and Postscript Audio. And Shale Khan is my co-host. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.